Hey everyone, welcome back to Panoramic Outdoors Podcast. This is episode 171 brought to you by iHunter. Know your regs inside and out. iHunter has been great to us. Um, and we'll get we'll talk about them maybe a little bit later. But what we are going to talk about is this podcast coming up. We have an awesome guest. It's um, you know, he's a doc. I believe he's a doctor. <laughs> I guess I should have looked that up. But anyways, he has the pig research page on, on Facebook, and he's done a lot of research on wild pigs in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. And he, yeah, he took his time out of his data to, to join us for just over an hour talking about the loose of wild pigs. So very cool episode. Stay tuned for that. But I have to introduce the co-host of the intro, April Don Willis. What's going on? Oh, you know, not a whole lot. Just getting getting a little bit of cabin fever here with this bad weather. Yeah, don't even complain because I'm in Thompson where it's minus like 300 every day. So I've been snowed in my yard two days in a row. Well, I don't know if that's your fault or Mother Nature's fault because you do have a snowblower. I do. Well, that's what I'm saying. I had to snowblow myself out two days in a row. Oh, yeah. Oh, you did get out though. Okay. I see. Yeah. I see. It's I see. Been fantastic. <laughs> hey, um, <laughs> How okay? So give me the give me the lowdown, or I don't know if you want to talk about it, but the tournament with Blake, our oh. our friend friend of the show, Blake Markman. Blake Markman Outdoors, big shout yeah. out there. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. I so Blake is like ten years younger than me, and I met Blake when he was just a just a little gaffer. He was probably like nineteen, maybe maybe he was twenty at the time. And I was definitely not interested in talking to a 19-year-old. And I thought, what do you want? And it just has turned out to be a really good relationship and like a good kid. And I call him, my husband and I call him baby brother um, because we're always looking after him. So baby brother and I are signed up for and fishing in the, um, what was the KWT last year was the, the um, fishing tournament in Winnipeg. And yeah, on Lake Winnipeg. And now it is the, I have to think of the proper, it is the elite. um, Oh my God. Longest answer ever. You should know your shit. I'm so sorry. It's this elite something or other that we're fishing in. Oh, Can't great. Remember. So April, April and Blake are fishing in the lead, something or other, in Winnipeg. <laughs> Not like Winnipeg. Well, you asked um, me about it, so I'm telling you all the things, okay? Just let me let me finish my so, story. Well, that's fine. Once you find it, I'll just kind of fill in the, the, the dead air here. Um, it's the Elite guys, Icebreaker. Kickerfish Elite Icebreaker. Okay, there we there go. There we go. Sorry. There we go. So we're fishing in that tournament, and we did our first session this past weekend. So it would have been, you know... Um, mid-January here and it was absolutely miserable. Um, Sorry, before you carry on, you said first session, just explain it quickly for anybody that's listening that doesn't understand what the hell you're talking about. It's a fishing tournament mm-hmm. on the ice, ice fishing mm-hmm. tournament, but it's more mm-hmm. than one day. Yeah, it's a tour. Uh, I guess you can call it a tour. So there are three qualifier tournaments and then a final. And so you have to get so many points to continue making it through. So we have three qualifiers and then you would fish the first day of, so qualifiers are one day and then the final is two days. So you have to fish your three qualifiers and based on the points that puts you in like your points ranking. And then you have to be, I think it's top 20 fish the first day of the final. And then the top 10 fish the second day of the final, 
but then they have like a b-side which isn't open um and they're doing this more kind of more like your Bassmaster elites where you have like a tour card and things like that and so you have to place specific spots to get your tour card and that's the one part that i don't get as much blake knows more about that he's he's um worrying about that part (laughs) i just know that we got to do good so yeah so we fished that this uh past sunday and it was very miserable weather and it's tough but we did good we got fourth out of there are i believe 28 teams registered in total and there were 27 on the ice that day we got fourth nice good for you guys congratulations on that um john throw in the applause and then (laughs) what what did you find you you, i seen on facebook i think or maybe instagram but i think it was facebook the kind of like the bigger fish that you caught that day what were you guys what was you like what were you guys uh catching them on generally i can't tell you that because then it would oh yeah i guess i guess everyone else all those other people are listening to this podcast and yeah every single one of them is a huge secret um five diamond spoon (laughs) yeah right no (laughs) um but not far off really like uh i mean there's you don't have to give me the specific the specific lure but like maybe like was it like just a a jig and a minnow kind of type setup or was it like crank like rattles what was it actually a little bit of everything so some of our good fish we caught on rattles and then um we caught on spoons like silver spoons with minnows Mm -hmm. uh, like a minnow head or whatever and then um like small jigging like small jigging spoons Uh, like specifically ice jigging spoons and then i think we did catch one on a jig and a minnow so because you're you're allowed two rods right so generally what i'll end up doing is um Dead I stick, run dead stick, jig in the middle, and then yep. whatever. And then you're, you you're and then you're active with. on your jigging rod. Yep. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, learn from the best. That's what I do. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, did you use your iHunter app out there? Because last intro we did with the Joel Pell episode, Tristan was telling me, which I think is just genius. I didn't think he was that smart, but apparently he is. Um, but he marks like ice ridges and all this stuff just so if it's like windy and stuff out and, and you know you're not going to be pushing the skinny pedal too hard over top of them and, and launching the truck, especially <laughs> when you have shitty tires, eh, Blake? Yeah. Anyways. Hey, Blake. Um, but did you use your iHunter app at all? While you're uh, I'm going to show you on the screen. Um, this is my, this you is do my, know we're on a, we do, you do know we're yeah, on I'm showing you because I know that the audience or the listeners can't see that. Okay. So that's okay, my screen okay. from the weekend, okay. uh, which, which, what and that's I coming did, on at Balsam Bay. Sh- no, it's not. <laughs> yes. That's coming on in Balsam Bay. Okay, um, well, that's a pretty good track. Yep. The, we did a, we did a long little, uh, stint there. So actually what I did was because Saturday, the weather was really bad and it was really, really windy on the lake. Um, I ended up doing what is called a track. Um, so I, I laid a track from exactly where we launched, um, our whole day until we were ready to leave and go back. So I did a track while we were coming onto all of our to, onto the lake and to all our spots, and I all of those blue marks that you saw there, those are all ridges. So oh, yeah. we crossed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten ridges on our way to the spot. Wow. Yeah, I, I that was not. Um, I am not used to ridges. Like I grew up fishing Stillwater lakes in the ducks. Like there's no ridges on them; they freeze solid, and that's it. So going over the ridges in a snowstorm, I was really, really anxious about it. And like Blake knew it. 
-hmm. and he tried to kind of either not tell me things or say things that would keep me calmer kind of thing. Um, and then after we got off the ice, he was like, yeah, that was a really bad one. And, uh, I could, I could see down into it and I maybe shouldn't have crossed there. And I'm like, Oh my God. Oh, wow. So crazy, crazy. And, uh, so yeah, use your eye hunter. That's cool. Um, did you have any Badlands gear out there? Does, since everyone knows now that we're uh, affiliated with Badlands for the year, mm-hmm. uh, I had my merino, my merino gloves. Oh, nice! Yeah, they're like a tight-fitting, thin merino glove, really nice. And uh, the long underwear. Okay. And right I on. mean, I'm always cold, so I've got like a million layers on, and I've got heated vests, and just and like I said, it was super miserable out. So what's on, what's on your feet? What are you wearing? I know we got to get you a pair of dry shots, but what are you what are you wearing until they come in the mail? Um, just some like insulated boots, insulated like rubber right. style boots. Yeah, I have those uh, dry shot like they're like the super cold ones. They have like mm-hmm. a little yeti on them, but yeah, I literally like wear steady those. Steady yeti. Steady yeti. Yeah, I wear mm-hmm. those from like September till spring. Like mm-hmm. I deer hunt in them. I ice fishing hunt. Ice fish hunting them. I go <laughs> ice fishing in them. Everything. Snowmobile in them. There are the boot to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways. I like, you know, I have always hated like rubber boots growing up, but I really like like the, the, oh, rubber, the just wait, just wait. <laughs> the insulated rubber boots that are being created nowadays are amazing. Yeah. Like I cannot believe the jump in, I don't know if you want to call it technology or just like what companies are able to do now, completely different. And I am, I'm totally here for it. Like the, I did have a pair of dry shods that were not the right size for me. And so we're just like getting those exchanged and just waiting for the new pair for me, which is, is great. But like, they feel so nice. The insulation, it's not like the old, do you remember um, old boots where you had that in, insole that like came out and you have to dry it by the fire every night. And like my dad mm-hmm. still uses those and he loves them. Yeah. I think my dad has a pair too. I was going to say baloney. You probably wore rubber boots to school where you grew up, but uh, bad, <laughs> <No>. bad joke. <laughs> um, fish bingo. We have another month. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the month. So anybody mm-hmm. that's doing the fish bingo can find, what they need to do on our website but and for prizes. What do we all have this month? Like, I know there's a couple co-op gift cards. What else do we got? Do you remember? Um, am I putting you on the spot? You're putting me on the spot. I know this, this month is like a prize package. So last month we had Stillwater Adventures from Verdon had given us uh, or donated a really amazing prize package that Kylie had won. And yeah. that was fantastic. And so then this month is a, a compilation of yeah. items from our other sponsors. I know um, who it is. Do right. I want me to just continue? I know I know the prize. Oh, yes. Oh, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. I thought you meant you uh, knew the winner. I'm like, how? The month isn't over. <laughs> no, we're going to do um, the co-op gift cards so you can get out, get some fuel, maybe some gas, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got the wool love package. That's, yeah. So that'll be probably, oh, I don't know where you got to look through it and find out exactly what it is, but that, mm-hmm. no matter what it is from all of it's, it's always amazing it's stuff. And then good. we, yep. yeah. And then we're going to get a catch and cook package too. Josh and Jay right. have, are donating to that. So mm-hmm. there's going to be a catch cook, wool love and the co-op. So that's, that'd be a really cool package to get. I mean, a yep. value. And, of, and I have a couple badlands items here that uh, they had given oh, us right. for giveaways and things. So there'll be a badlands, a badlands item in that package too. Yeah, easily like four or five hundred dollar value there for doing what? Just 
really nothing. Just uh, just ice fishing pictures. and taking pictures and yeah, crossing some stuff off anyways. on a piece of paper. Exactly. Um, other than that, I just want to give a huge shout out to Citizen Canvas. Um, if you've listened to our last episode, you know that they've uh, come on board with old Panoramic and we're going to be running their gear again this year, which I'm super pumped about, especially not only for camping, but I'm more pumped about it for hunting because we've got, mm-hmm. I've got some trips lined up. I know April's been talking about doing some foraging and upland trips, mm-hmm. so that, that might, you might take advantage of that tent stove and all the camping gear that we, that we got. So. So huge thanks to this in Canvas. They help uh, produce this podcast. So support them if you can. And other than that, is there anything else before we get into this episode? I don't think so. I think we're all caught up. Yeah. Well, let's launch it. Let's 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 talk a little bit, Peggy. Let's get Peggy. Well, in this episode, I have to welcome to our podcast Ryan Brook. Ryan is uh, running. Whole bunch of stuff and we don't really actually know much about him but we're going to learn a lot about him today but the one thing that we kind of came across on the old facebook is the canadian wild pig research page and that's how we got hooked up with ryan so ryan thanks for uh, joining the podcast oh i'm excited to talk to you guys this is great thanks awesome how we normally start the podcast is we do five burning questions i don't know if you've heard of any of our episodes yet but we'll hit you with five burning questions i'm going to go with three tristan you got two or three i got two lined up yep Okay, I'll hit you with three questions, and you can answer them long form, short form, and uh, there's no right or wrong wrong answers to them normally, but you never know. <laughs> so, Ryan, we'll my first question. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Our, my first question I ask everyone is if you if you kind of had one last meal on this earth, uh, what would you have to eat and what would you have to drink with it? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, would be a Corona with a lime, ice cold, baked potato, beans, uh, a good ribeye steak, and a slice of full cooked slice of walleye on top of that. Ooh, that's a good one. With homemade. That's our cab meal. I don't know how you nailed that, but we've had that one up in camp a few times, and uh, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I could eat that every day for the rest of my life. I certainly could do it for my final meal, no questions asked. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Corona drinker too. I like, uh, especially in the summer, getting a box of them and pretending I'm in Mexico somewhere. But yeah, um, yeah <laughs> Corona. Uh, my second question for you is, um, if you are looking to bait wild pigs, what's like the secret ingredient to a bait? That you'd say well i think that you could sum it up in one word with stink it's got to smell and it's got to be really powerful i mean they will come after lots and lots of different things but smell is going to draw them in from a distance and so um rotting corn with uh four liters of cream soda pop mixed in oh uh, add in two or three things of baker's yeast and mix that up until it uh, may and once you start gagging you're probably in about the right zone for it <laughs> And so, uh, the, yeah, rotting corn is probably your best bet with with some other stuff added in. But you know what? Even even just super cheap cans of cat food, anything that's fishy and stinky. Um, there's so many things that will draw pigs in. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, and we'll probably get back to that in a later part of the podcast. Here, my third question for you um, is: I, pardon my French, I call it "fuck you" money. But if like a bag of money just fell out of the sky on your lap and you couldn't invest it or give it to anyone you had to look after yourself what would you treat yourself with oh boy one of the things that is my pet dream in life and it's uh, maybe just uh, uh, that i would definitely probably my first purchase is there's these the um amazingly ultralight two-person uh amphibious airplane called an icon have you seen these things 
They're okay. made entirely of, um, a back, I don't know if it's graphite or it's some ultralight substance. They're like three or 400 grand, but you can actually park it in your garage. You could tow it with an SUV and it, uh, it, you'll land on any lake and just hop out and go for a swim or whatever. And so I would just go to every lake there was across Northern Canada and fish until my arm fell off. <laughs> I like that answer. I like that answer. Tristan, you're so- up. Sounds like a good way to die. Just both <laughs> both arms fell off fishing. Can't can't Man. move forward. That, can't fly that's home. Something I'm arms. just obsessed with. I just watch videos, and it's one of those things I'll, I'll never afford. But if that uh, bag of money ever falls from the sky, that's my number one purchase for sure. Yeah, it, if you won the lottery, there'd be signs. <laughs> you bet. Um, if you're, I was going to ask if you're not reading for work, what are you reading? I, uh, because I do read a lot for work. I like some stuff that doesn't require a whole lot of brain horsepower. One of my best friends and I, we swap a lot of just, um, Mitch Rapp, the, those novels. And basically the world is going to end and some guy has to go save the day and usually involves a lot of shooting and, and, uh, doing some crazy adventures. That's uh, certainly fun for me. I'm also totally obsessed with world war two and I have whole bookshelves full of World War II books that I just, I'm um, just in the middle of reading um, one big one right now on uh, the whole history of World War II front to back. So it's pretty cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would, that would be a lot. I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> Anytime I kind of dip my toe into that kind of front, it seems like there's, there's a whole can of worms in almost every kind of turn that you, you encounter there. Mm-hmm. And then my last question here is, and I know we don't, get into politics but this could be a bit of a contentious one if you're attending the the banjo bowl who are you cheering for because i i heard you started in winnipeg but yeah you moved out to saskatchewan there and so we uh we have to know who you're cheering for in the banjo oh, boy that's a, is this actually going on record can you <laughs> this, this could be air to all our six this listeners could end, could end friendships and could cause some battles i might have to move but yeah, I'm, I was born and raised on a farm just outside of Winnipeg and uh, spent a lot of time there and tromping around the wilds of Manitoba and still do actually. Um, and now, yeah, Saskatoon's been home for 14 years. So I have to admit I'm still a Bombers guy, uh, but this may come and bite me if uh, anybody in Saskatchewan hears it. When I, the first year I moved here, I uh, I was in rural Saskatchewan doing some field work and I pulled in for gas and the guy i grabbed a thing of blue windshield washer fluid and he said actually for an extra two bucks you can get rider green and i said oh no thanks i'm a bomber guy and i thought he was going to come over the counter at me he did not <laughs> he did not find that humorous at all and you realize yeah. it's not necessarily a joking thing around these parts <laughs> <laughs> oh that's too bad yeah we had a as a Winnipeg Jets fan. Apparently, we had a few dust ups in Minnesota last time. Our fans were there too. So it, it's. I mean, I I love the rivalry, but it's a, it's unfortunate if like things are getting to the point where people are getting hurt or something like that. Yeah. Well, you made it. Congratulations. Made it so we're Canis, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I guess I, I would like to start this, Ryan, is just um, maybe give us a little bit of background on like, um, like I said in the intro there, that we kind of found you on that pig research page on uh, on Facebook. But like, obviously, it started a long, long before that. Um, can you maybe give us a background on like, like you said, you came from Winnipeg, etc. But uh, where did it all start for you? Well, I was born at a very young age. Um, no, I won't talk about my childhood, <laughs> except to say that 
there was one point in my life where I, I built a, a bird's nest in my grandpa and grandma's uh, trees. And the next morning, there were two big white eggs in there that looked an awful lot like chicken eggs, but I didn't know it. And so that was probably a turning point where I got hooked on nature. And and so I grew up on a farm and, and we had pigs and other animals. And so I learned a lot about agriculture, but I also got really obsessed with being out in the bush. And and uh, a big turning point in my life actually was I went on this backcountry uh, canoe trip in high school for graduation. And I'd done lots of camping with my family, but it was all drive-in sites and, you know, did tons of snowmobiling and stuff, but it was always staying at cabins. And this, that was my first time really getting out into the middle of nowhere. And that just changed the whole course of my life. And I got hooked on wildlife and, and being in nature. And, and that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And that's <laughs> the 40 years later, whatever it is now, uh, we're not quite 40 years later, but uh, all that time now, that's what I do. And so I'm really interested in agriculture, but also interested in wildlife and natural ecosystems. And so I worked on a bunch of different things in Manitoba, spent a bunch of time tromping around the Hudson Bay coast near Churchill for my master's, Worked at Riding Mountain National Park, studied elk for a long time and, uh, in Riding Mountain, and then uh, was kind of thinking, I'd love to do this, something that involves both agriculture and wildlife, and happened to spend a few years in the vet school at Calgary and ended up uh, here. And what was really cool is uh, I met my department head when I first got hired, and I said, like, what is it that you want me to do exactly? And he kind of looked at me, <laughs> he's like, what, what are you talking about? You get to do whatever you want. We just hired you because we like what you do and you're good at what you do. So go do more of it. And I was like, wow, holy shit. I literally get a free hand to do what I want to do. And so it was a blessing and a curse in the sense that what an opportunity to go do whatever I want to do. But also I had to kind of figure out a plan. And so I was thinking about what is the career worth of wildlife research going to look like? You know, I was still, I wasn't 40 yet, but I'd put a lot of time in school getting all these, all this training. And so I was well along and my parents were happy to see I finally had a real permanent full-time job for the first time in my life. Um, and the idea was, well, what am I going to do that's going to have an impact? And, you know, there's lots of good people doing a lot of stuff on elk and deer and moose and wolves. And there was, you know, I wouldn't say the market was anywhere near saturated on the prairies here. Uh, but certainly there was people doing good things. And But one of the things that came up from a number of people said was these wild pigs were starting to show up at that time. And so this is 2010. Nobody was talking a lot about it, but there were some guys in the uh, in the wildlife branch in Manitoba that were they put a couple of collars on pigs to find out where they were going to go and trying to use that as what they call a Judas pig to track it and find others. And they were doing some removals around Beausager and different areas. And it just sounded really fascinating. And so um, I got a bit of a startup grant when I got hired. They give you a little bit of money to say, you know, just hit the ground running, buy some gear and just get going. Don't wait and write grants and, and sit on your laurels. So right away, the first thing I did is bought a whole bunch of trail cameras and start putting them out to find these wild pigs. And at that time, the debate was, do these things exist? Are they really out there? Or is this just a phantom? Or, you know, people said, well, they escape from the occasional farm, but they're not going to survive a Manitoba or Saskatchewan or Alberta winter. Like, look at the conditions we have out right now. This morning, my phone told me it was minus 50 with the wind chill. Um, and people said, well, there's no way these pigs are going to survive that weather. Nobody mentioned the fact that they originated from Siberia, but... Uh, but that will come to that, I guess. But um, <laughs> but this notion of these pigs was really fascinating because we had pigs on the farm. And so I knew them inside the fence. And we had these great big crossbred Durek Landry sows that were 
800, 850 pounds, these massive sows that we're putting out. You know, I remember being there with 23 babies born at once from one female and just being fascinated by the the, the, the sheer reproductive force of these pigs. And then when we started learning about wild boar and that they were, you know, they were being farmed across Canada and they were getting into the wild, that became a red flag because what we know about pigs now, of course, and we learned from, you know, talk to people in the U.S. and Texas. And one guy, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Ryan, I don't care what you're doing right now. You might try and convince me it's important, but whatever you're doing, drop it and get busy on those pigs. Because if you don't do it now, those things are going to get out of hand and you'll never get rid of them. He said, take it from me in Texas. We have three million of those things and we are never getting rid of them. You have one chance and one chance only to do this well. And so I took that to heart and we started studying these things and um, and actually started off fairly slowly. We said we had very limited goals. We said we want to prove they exist, almost like it felt a, not unlike studying Bigfoot or Sasquatch in that most people thought we were crazy and many people thought we were chasing something that didn't exist. And lo and behold, after a little bit of trial and error, uh, we found nothing. <laughs> we were looking around Pike Lake area south of Saskatoon and we tried a bunch of areas and nothing and then a guy, a student in my class actually came up after a lecture and said, Ryan, if you want pigs, I'll take you to pigs. We're in the hot spot uh, where my family farm is. And so we went up there the next weekend and sure enough, there were pigs around there. And so we set up cameras and we checked them for the first time and found pigs on cameras. That was pretty exciting. And then people said, well, yeah, that's just an escapee running around. It's not established they're not gonna you know they're not gonna survive or become living in central saskatchewan in these this frozen arctic landscape um and then we found pictures of the reproducing with piglets running around and then we had a sow run by the camera with four big good size like 60 pound piglets and then running right behind them were wee little uh four or five wee little tiny piglets and so she had had two litters in one year which we knew was possible but a lot of people in the South said, well, that's in the South, you know, where we have good weather. And so we were collecting some of these data and not getting a whole lot of interest. People were, I mean, there was some media, there has been and always has been a ton of media interest. I do a little over 200 media interviews a year uh, talking about pigs and everybody gets excited about them. You know, they're pretty novel and interesting. But there was no interest from government and no interest from anybody, really. They just said, well, whatever. And and to be honest, after about two years of that, we had a bunch of our trail cameras stolen. And these are Reconyx top shelf research quality, you know, uh, 500 bucks a pop cameras. And so I got pretty frustrated and said, pull the cameras, we're going to reevaluate. We're not really making any traction here. Um, it's exciting science, but my goal in life is to do applied work. I don't want to collect science just to study something, the reproductive ecology of ants that nobody cares about or whatever, right? I want to do something that people will listen to and, and take to heart and maybe change change the world a little tiny bit along the way. And so we kind of got frustrated. But then, as chance would have it, we'd had the cameras down for a few weeks. And this guy from the USDA calls me out of, um, out of North Dakota. He said, Ryan, we just had a bunch of wild pigs show up here. And they're in the extreme northwest corner of North Dakota. Any idea where they came from? I said, yeah, I know exactly where they came from because a farm uh, in the very southeast corner of Saskatchewan had uh, uh, the father passed away and the kids all looked at each other and said, you take them. And they said, no, no, you take them. And they panicked and went out one night and cut the fence and let over 300 domestic wild boar go from a fence enclosure in a farm and let them go into the wild.
the locals removed a bunch of them, but unfortunately the side effect of that is it spread them everywhere and they went running in every direction. And so not surprisingly, two weeks later, they showed up in North Dakota. So this guy said, well, you got to come down to our conference here. We're having a conference in, uh, in the Southern U S and you got to talk about these Canadian pigs. And so we went down there and, and it was, it was a game changer, totally changed the path of my career because we were, uh, I was kind of talking to them about these ideas and we went to this conference and everybody said, well, we're making models of pigs. And as everybody knows, pigs only live in the warm. And so they live in California, Texas, Georgia, Florida. And obvi- obviously, as everyone knows, pigs are not going to survive in Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota. That's just not how pigs work, right? And then I went up and showed my pictures and my slides and evidence of these pigs living at 40 below. And everybody went, oh, shit, we have to totally rethink all of this. And so the timing was right. And the USDA said, like, what What are you getting for support from for research? And I said, nothing. I have no interest, no support. I'm I'm uh, I live I burned through my uh, my startup grant and I, I'm penniless. And he said, well, what would it take to get started? And I said, you know, like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Would you get some pretty serious uh, research going? And this was just over lunch and we're wrapping up. And I said, so what's next? Like I write a budget, I write a proposal and you guys evaluate it. And he kind of looked at me and said, what are you talking about? We just talked about this. We're giving you 200,000 bucks. <laughs> and so he sent us 200,000 US, which of course turned into at that time about $255,000 Canadian. And then all hell broke loose. And then we started capturing pigs and putting GPS satellite collars. We had graduate students. I had the student Ruth who uh, has produced since, and now she's uh, She's finished making maps of the distribution of these pigs across all of Canada. And we did a whole bunch of surveys and we did trail cameras and just did all this really fun and I think important research. And uh, and that's kind of where we're at today is still collecting research, still trying to get some impact, but, uh, but the research really took off and we just learned a ton about pigs through the process. I, um, I've got one, well, A, I want to go back to to a few questions as you, you explain your journey there ryan thanks for taking us through kind of that process here it's helpful for me to figure out kind of um how this all evolved um one i've got to know given your your status and position in the research community as a as a wild pig expert um how often do you cite the movie canadian bacon from 1995 john candy i hope that is in almost every presentation you give um but uh, more seriously, like uh, you, you'd mentioned, like where you where you first found. Thanks for laughing, Sheldon. Uh, where you first found those uh, initial pigs uh, right next to the family farm there, um, and obviously some excitement with like kind of confirming your work there. But was did that kind of hit home? Like did that literally hit home for you? Like n- knowing that these these pigs were out and in the wild near your 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 home yeah it was a it's a gut wrencher for sure and you know in the sense that and this has sort of been the conundrum of working with pigs is that they're super fascinating and you know i mean their their ability to just squirt out babies and spread like wildfire i mean we went from 1979 having no wild pigs of any kind no wild boar nothing to all of a sudden here now in 2024 we have pigs over 1 million square kilometers of canada at some level you have to begrudgingly uh respect these things and and yeah i think it was that double fold of going holy wow as a scientist this is kind of amazing but as a farm boy this is the this is a what we would refer to back home as a no shit situation where 
um, this is a very, very serious. And we, and you know, the the words of those that guy in Texas that hit me hard, 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 saying, "Wow, this is we are sort of like discovering a new virus almost that uh, that this is putting us in, and not just agriculture in peril, but hunting and fishing and and um, you know the nature that we like. Like when I work along Hudson Bay Coast, every single day when I go out, the first thing you do take your 12 gauge and you load it up with six slugs, throw over your back and you start hiking, right? Because there's polar bears everywhere and you've got a whole big thing of bangers on your hip and I got a starter pistol as backup and this whole thing with bear spray and whatnot. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be me hiking and, you know, riding mountain or hiking, you know, up at Churchill or, or like at Churchill um, that you're, you know, with all these pigs running around, this is going to be a, a danger to people as well, because these things can be, absolutely massive like the biggest one we ever handled uh on the prairies was 600 there was a female that was 638 pounds which is just shy of 300 kilos that is a big animal with huge razor sharp tusks and and no fear whatsoever so yeah it was a it was a daunting moment or what i might call a full moment of uh, a whole bunch of things happening at once and and this sort of realization that I cannot stop on this. I got to keep on it. And to be perfectly honest with you, I've had an, a number of moments over the last 14 years where I've wanted to say, to hell with this. I should go something, study something easy and, and outside of politics and outside of uh, getting attacked on a daily basis and been pretty frustrated. But uh, well, I, I'm not. I won't. I haven't quit 14 years. I got 16 left. I told my wife I'm retiring in uh, uh, June 30th. 3.40 p.m. Uh, 2040 is my date, and I'm planning to stick to that unless the markets do something crazy and I can't afford it. But uh, that's uh, who's counting? Who's counting, exactly. So, uh, 200 grand from the USDA, you're you're over halfway there to your uh, your graphite plane, kind of. I would have just cut and run at that point in time. But I the plane and never see me again. Just yeah. Here into yeah. the bush. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could drive home for us here, maybe like clarify to just like the Ricks, these pigs pose. Um, obviously, a lot of your work's dedicated to that. But um, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard someone say like, oh, I'd love to get me one of those those pigs or stuff my brother went and hunted pigs and like he had a blast you know like there's there's clearly some people feel like there's some upside to having pigs around and like they i think people see that video from texas of people like getting in the helicopter with like all kinds of firearms and and taking down a few wild pigs at night like what what that stuff seems cool but like what's what's the flip side of that conversation look like yeah, some people love them, but most people hate them. And then the more you know them, the more you hate them, for sure. I despise them with every ounce of my being, and I would love that we got rid of them and I could move on to go back to study elk and caribou and wolves and some other stuff that I actually find more interesting. But uh, but here we are. The risks are, are huge. And, you know, I constantly refer to them as the worst invasive large mammal on the planet. It's hard to imagine, at least here on the Canadian prairies, what could be worse. Um, you know, given their high reproductive rate, their huge size, they travel in big groups, and so they eat almost anything, right? And so they have huge impacts on uh, ground nesting birds. So they just do these huge roots around wetlands and streams and things and gobble up eggs and goslings and ducklings and uh, ground nesting birds in the spring. Huge impact there. 
We've cut open stomachs and seen them just stuffed full of nothing but frogs and salamanders. We've seen them full of nothing but canola. Um, they they will take down and kill anything and up to including an adult white-tailed deer. And they eat a lot of young uh, ungulates as well. I'm not as clear on them eating elk, but I, I know in areas where they're elk, they will be uh, taking down elk calves and white-tailed uh baby fawns as well and everything in between is small mammals and so they are just uh you know we often refer to them as an ecological train wreck because they eat all these different things in huge volumes um, but they also tear up the ground and these pigs have these huge necks I, it really hit home for me uh, we had just finished up a moose collaring study and i took the moose collar and i went to put it around uh this stuff i have a big a 300 pound or maybe almost 400 pound wild pig on wheels. That's a fully stuffed taxidermied animal I got from my uh, my taxidermist in Manitoba, did it up really nice on wheels. So I roll Boris in whenever I go to meetings. But I went to put the moose collar around and it wasn't even close around that neck. There was probably a foot shy of even closing that collar around the neck of the pig. And I went, oh wow, these animals are pretty big. And that was by no means the biggest pig I'd ever seen. And so, uh, so they're huge. And they uh, they dig in the ground, they stick their nose in the ground and they push and they tear the ground apart to look for roots and uh, insect larvae. And of course, you know, a deer or elk comes in and they browse a little bit and they graze a bit. And, you know, a, a handful of animals, you can't even tell they were there other than maybe some droppings. But when pigs are there, you know they're there because they just tore the whole place apart. The ground is ripped up and uh, you just see mud everywhere. And that ground is exposed to, you know, invasive species moving in. And there, you imagine the recovery is a, is a different order of magnitude than, you know, grass that's been nipped down two or three inches compared to ground that's been just torn up. It looks like a rototiller went through or a small bomb went off. Then they get into water and pigs don't have sweat glands like we do. And so when it gets hot, the, how they cool off, of course, we know pigs, they wallow in the mud. So they get into wetlands and they roll in the mud and they rip up the cattails and eat the roots. And they soak in the water and they defecate in the water. And so you get E. coli and salmonella and just really dirty water. So they destroy water quality. They tear up ground. They eat everything there is to eat. And perhaps most importantly, they have this huge potential to spread diseases that can go to humans, to pets, to wildlife, and to livestock. And so the range of, of impacts that these things have is massive. And I've heard many hunters say to me, oh, I wish we had those things where I am. And I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah, uh, they sound good on paper, right? Many people call them the poor man's grizzly because unlike your average hunted species, if you see a group of these and you drop two, there's a reasonable chance that the fourth that survive, at least some of them will turn and try and take you out and will charge you. And that has happened here in the Canadian prairies. And a person I know was hunting in Spruce Woods in Manitoba and a couple of pigs shot. Uh, was, oh no, he's deer hunting. Uh, was gutting the deer by the truck and set the gun on the tailgate and uh, was uh, all of a sudden heard pigs coming running. It was getting fairly dark and starting to lose light. And he heard this grunting and all of a sudden pigs were coming hard and wow. probably coming after a gut, the gut pile. I think they get used to hearing the gunshot. The hunter leaves, you know, the whatever legs uh, gut pile behind and they gobble it up. And so it's hard to say if they were being aggressive or not, but they were running right at him. And so he dropped to... Uh, got a third one down, and then the last one took off, uh, but it was very, very scary situation. And I know a number of people that when they go out hunting in groups, they have guys with high-powered rifles to take them out. 
but they also have two or three guys with shotguns with uh, slugs and SSG to protect the shooters, to protect the humans. Uh, because if they if they don't get them all and those pigs start coming in close, you want close in weapons uh, to take them out. And I know, you know, a buddy of mine was standing on his seat of a snowmobile shooting pigs and one survived and came running at him and uh, his gun jammed. And the only thing that saved him from probably a major train wreck is his buddy nearby dropped him mid run as he was coming right at him to take him off his seat. So they can oh, wow. be aggressive. They can be super dangerous. You know, there was a woman just outside of Dallas a couple of years ago that was uh, in a city. She was two feet from her house and a group of pigs took her down and killed her. So, uh, so they can be pretty dangerous as well. So uh, yeah, if, uh, if people think they're excited about having them and, and of course the idea of shooting them is great. And, you know, I'm always honest in my answers and people always say the pigs taste good. And I say, well, I, I hate to admit it, but yes, they're fantastic. Um, well, at least some of them. Uh, the, depending on, you got to be a little bit smart about how you do it. But generally, they can be fantastic, which is unfortunate, but that's a reality. And so people get excited about hunting them until they realize that they put their waterfowl hunt at risk, their upland game bird hunt at risk, their elk season, uh, potentially even their moose season as they destroy wetlands and tear apart habitats. So they're just a tremendous disaster to have and, and nobody that has lots of them wants them, that's for sure. Yeah, that's that's uh, a lot of information there and like I've got probably a million question, million softball questions for you um, now listening for a bit, but I guess I, I will kind of talk about, like you, you did mention like them escaping like uh, them being farmed like what was the attraction back whenever when to actually farm wild pigs? Like, why, would, why wouldn't you just farm domestic yeah, pigs that's a that's a great question and and uh, this goes all the way back to the 80s and 90s and this was um this was me growing up at that time on a farm and so there was this huge push across canada to diversify agriculture we couldn't just have cows and wheat and hay bales that's you know that's fine and good but we if we're going to survive in the new global era we're going to have to diversify and so there was a big push for elk ranching was huge right People were getting emu farms. All of this exotic wildlife was this big money-making, get-rich-quick scheme, and wild boar were one of them. And the governments invested huge amounts of money in supporting this to help, you know, and, and I think everybody agreed at that time that it was going, there had a lot of potential to be a, a big winner for some producers, right? But sadly, some producers sold their, you know, their boring old domestic pigs or, or lot cattle or whatever and bought in at the and as you know with the elk industry and pigs and everything the buy-in is expensive there's a big startup where you know you you're selling uh, bred females for huge dollars and people spent a lot of money on fencing and buying into it and the promise was not only were all the fancy restaurants going to be buying this wild boar to be a fancy dish on the plates of the big fancy restaurants but that Asia was going to be buying all this stuff for top dollar. And so this was supposed to be big money. And they did some homework on this and said, yeah, Japan is willing to pay major premiums for wild boar meat. Um, and that was true, except unfortunately, just the way it worked in Western Canada, they never really got enough production ramped up. You know, Japan doesn't want to buy a shipping container of wild boar. They want, you know, several ship loads. And we just never had the infrastructure set up and the market just never took off. And so, so farms kept building and building starting in 1980 and all over Canada. I think every single province, as far as I could tell, and even in the Yukon, they, they were at least dabbled in it. But in the Canadian prairies, Quebec, Ontario, 
all across was a lot of people went all in on this and there were thousands of farms with the with these pigs uh, and then the market peaked in 2001 uh, and things were looking pretty good but then it became very clear that this asian market was not going to happen and there was some, you know then there was a small market for you know taking it to uh, your your regular your your sunday uh, farmers market or or you know a couple of fancy hotels or something were serving it on the menu but not enough to support and so things collapsed very quickly after 2001. You could barely give these things away. And instead of just killing them and literally giving them away, a lot of people just cut the fence and let them go. And that's unfortunate. And uh, some escape too. These things are very, very hard to keep inside a fence. They'll tunnel under a fence. They'll run through. And I have a photo of a pig standing on top of a five-foot fence as it's rocketing over top on its uh, mid-stride as it basically jumps a five-foot fence, hits the ground doing roughly 400 miles an hour and is a blur and is gone so they are hard to keep in a fence to be fair and i know a number of producers that were missing a finger or two along the way they're not a lot of fun to raise if they're you know they're pretty wild and so people started cutting fence and just letting them go and uh, and that's when a lot of people said well they'll never survive a winter no big deal but they did and they're they're you know in the court surviving a winter having thick fur, long legs, and being really big. Being big is huge for surviving in the cold, right? Um, and they were all of those things. And also they got really smart and they learned to tunnel into the snow. And so right now today in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, where it's, you know, 30 below right now or so, maybe maybe worse in some areas, those pigs are tucked in under the snow. Although this year is interesting because we don't have a lot of snow. And so one of the things I sort of predicted, like, you know, Christmas Day, it was, I think, plus two here or something, and uh, it was brown. There was no snow. And so one of the things I predicted, I said, this January cold is coming. Like, it's got to come. And if it comes without snow, we may see a, a real uh, a high mortalities of pigs because they have typically relied on deep, thick snow in cattail marshes to survive. And in fact, that's one of the ways that we find them is that if you get a crazy pilot that will take you up at first light at 40 below, you can actually see steam pouring out of these marshes. Looks like a kettle going off, and you're what? You know what is that white cloud? Well, that is steam pouring out of these of these snow caves. That these pigs, you know, seven hundred and fifty pounds of pigs all bundled in together underneath two and a half feet of snow, and it's it's like a sauna in there, and the heat is pouring out of there. And so you can actually find the these snow tunnels by spotting the the steam or first before you see anything else. Wild. Literally, <laughs> I can't um, what the original question was, I I do ramble a little bit, but uh, hopefully that got eventually to what you asked. I covered it all. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, I was wondering too. I like I I appreciate kind of like the ecology and the the analysis, the scientific analysis of the, the pig and the the history of that and how it got started. But I'm also super interested, kind of in. Well, you've mentioned here kind of your applied approach and also politics a few times and like, well, we don't stray into into partisan politics. We we had a whole another podcast with a, a friend of ours, uh, Paul McCartney, who's now working in the Yukon um, on kind of like the how how conservation can be inherently political sometimes and like i think about like how many times i've heard like we just need to do what's best for the species or we just need to do what's best for the environment um and i think that's easy to say on paper but as soon as you start traveling down that path the, the question seems to get very complicated very quickly 
And so I, I see you, you've been up to some stakeholder work and stuff like that. Can you tell me like in the context of this, like this pig work or even some other species, like what does that look like and what, what does it mean to like actually apply science in a, in a way that it's meaningful for communities, for people, for hunters, for people who are interested in conservation? Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick time out to thank one of our sponsors and that is Co-op. With over 160 local cooperative associations and 600 communities and over 200 million active Co-op members and 23,000 employees, they're a company that is local. They invest in our communities and that's why we love them. So thanks a lot to Co-op for supporting our podcast. If you have the chance, go and check out your local Co-op or if you're traveling through Stop in and say hi, get your gas, get your fuel, get your lumber, get your agricultural stuff, get whatever you need. Check out Co-op. Thanks again. Well, that's a great question. I think probably the 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 first answer that I would say is is when we get into engaging communities, is I think I have I had to learn to shut up a lot. I have a lot to say, and you might have picked up on that, that I'm a pretty chatty guy. Uh, but if you want to work with communities well, I think you have to shut your yapper and listen. And ask questions and just listen and um, and coming from a farming background that has certainly helped when I talk to landowners that are you know that are often uh, rural folks and and often farmers themselves like those conversations they're certainly easier when you have that background and you know the language and you can kind of talk about you know when someone says grain bag or silage or you know whatever um, you know you know what the heck they're talking about which not all city people do that helps for sure. Um, but I also think just being easygoing and listening, and and I think that one of the things I've been interested in is is taking the kind of work we do um, in the direction that people want it to go, and you know, letting them drive some of the questions and say, well, what are you worried about? What are the things that are important to you, and why is it important to you? And also, I think you definitely have to check your ego at the door. And I, I've been very lucky in that I grew up in a family where if you ever had any notion of an ego, you get chopped down pretty hard and pretty fast, and and the, the, I remember the farmers and, and, and my family picked up on this, too, because I made the mistake of telling them was that I went out and helped. Uh, I was working on elk at Riding Mountain. And one of the things I went out and helped in the early days was help set up these fences to protect hay bales from elk. And so we're drilling holes. And one of the guys said, oh, I know what Ph.D. I was working on my Ph.D. at the time. And he said, I know what Ph.D. stands for post hole digger. And my brother still calls me post hole digger to my face uh, <laughs> on a regular basis, uh, as older brothers do. But I mean, that's important. You keep your ego in check, right? That you don't think you're some big hotshot scientist. I'm just a farm boy from Glass, Manitoba, um, just listening to people. And, you know, I don't show up uh, in a big three piece suit. I just got my flannel shirt and my t shirt and jeans on or whatever. And I'm I just happy to have a cheese sandwich as have anything else and just sit around and talk to people and listen to what they have to say. And, Going on the land, spending time on the land with people, I think has been so good. Every, you know, you sit around a boardroom table at a university or something, and and people get a little not not as comfortable, a little bit nervous. But you go walk the back forty of their own property, and they start telling you stories of their their you know their your grandparents uh, homesteading here and their history. And I think so. Listening is is a big part of just showing up. We went to. I've been to hundreds and hundreds of different meetings. Sometimes I'm a speaker. Sometimes I'm just there to to sit and listen. And one of the things that I learned is that when you when you pay attention and you don't try and blah 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 too much and don't you know you realize that from my view science is important. But I also know that 
you know, my father could predict the weather so well by listening. We had a train that ran right through the middle of our farm. And he would say, well, Environment Canada says it's going to be clear for the rest 24 hours, but I'm not cutting hay. I don't like the sound of that train. And sure enough, four hours later, it starts pouring rain. <laughs> he, he listened. He could tell by the, he said, and I never totally, I still don't think I have it. But he said, well, it sounds really mournful and really hollow. And that means the rain is coming. And so he could predict that. And so, you know, that the huge knowledge that I grew up, my grandfather and my father farmed together and I farmed with them for years. And so the three of us, um, you know, that that kind of um, inherited knowledge or, or, or might call earned knowledge that you get by just every single day mucking out the pig pens and throwing hay bales and learning like you learn about the land and, and how that stuff works from just doing it. And so I've been very fortunate, for example, I've been out on a ton of caribou hunts up on for barren ground caribou with indigenous people in the middle of nowhere. I've been out hunting various animals and on just go out for hikes and look around with people. And so I think part of that is just really forming relationships and, and just kind of listening and hopefully eventually and showing up a time and time again and then all of a sudden they remember your name and you're like, okay, that's a big win. You remember my name. That's awesome. That's a big first step. Right. And, uh, and just keep showing up over and over again and being available and just being totally honest too. I think that one of the things that I find turns people off a lot is when, when scientists or government folks have these very polished presentations and they're very dry and very boring and, and people are just kind of nodding off and like, and you ask them after, what'd you get from that? And they're like, I don't remember a damn thing. And uh, and so what was what was the value of that hour of people falling asleep, holding their coffee cups, listening to somebody put up a hundred slides of stuff that nobody understood? And so keeping it simple, but not and not meaning that people are dumb, but just not going into this big scientific, you know, you don't have to use a bunch of big words and huge PowerPoints to get people you know, understand what you're working at. And so what I have done a lot is saying, well, rather than me give you a presentation, why don't you come out with me? I'll take an antenna and let's go find some animals and let's find out where they are. And as we're trying, you know, you're driving along and you have a conversation, you get out of the truck, you're, oh, there's some, you hear the, the signal from the antenna. Okay, the animal's over there. What's it doing there? Okay, and you have a whole uh, conversation. So I think that's certainly part of it and trying to be, trying to be as easygoing as you can and kind of listen to what people have. And, and you do take it on the chin. That's the reality of the job is that um, sometimes people don't like what you have to say. And there are, there are uh, rural people are known for their uh, brutal honesty and will, uh, will definitely tell you what you think, whether you ask for it or not. And, and so I, I have a good sense of humor. I think that probably more than anything has helped me along the way too, that I can laugh at jokes, but I can also laugh at myself. People want to make fun of you know me, then just laugh along and roll with it. And it's it's not meant necessarily to be mean. Have you tried handing out any Pilsner at your presentations? I have never <laughs> given out Pilsner yet. Um, but certainly uh, been to lots and lots of different, uh, any kind of meeting or any kind of sitting around a fire or going out on the land. I've I've rarely ever said no to any of those opportunities. For one, yeah. I love doing it. And for two, I think I learn more than anybody else does. I learn a lot and just um, hearing what people have to say is really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, you you try the Pilsner thing next meeting there and let me know what the P-value on that one is. And then... <laughs> um, but, Might get uh, in trouble from the university, but yeah, ah, just you you <laughs> slip it into the expenses there as like okay. meals and entertainment. Uh, it's um, 2024. Yeah. Have a beer. Um, 
But I was also wondering too, like it makes me think, and I don't want to necessarily dive into the details, but it makes me think of the moose situation here in Manitoba where we, we have like not a lot of answers to what a lot of people are flagging as a, as a problem. And, um, it's been hard to watch. I get that lots of folks are coming to the table with different interests and different knowledge bases and different perspectives. How do you pave a way forward when you got so many different kind of ideas coming, coming to the table from different backgrounds and different, um, different interest groups? Yeah, that's probably the hardest question I've ever had in my life because uh, that is at the crux of it, I think, is the biggest challenge. I think listening to everybody, I, one of the things that I argue a lot is that there's a hell of a lot more common ground than people necessarily see or want to see. I think people are very happy being feeling like they have their own views and that everybody else is out to get them or everybody else just disagrees with them or they live in a different world than me and will never understand me. I think that's a lot of bull hunky in a lot of ways. And I think one of the things I try probably more than anything else is to try and find common ground. Um, and with a lot of things, you know, when it came to elk, one of the things we we said to, to, every, I said to everybody is, well, First Nations guys, do you want elk gone from the landscape? No, no, we value them. We want to eat them. We love elk. They're important to our culture. Uh, farmers, you want them gone? No, I absolutely, what came out loud and clear with the majority of farmers is they said, we don't want them gone. We just don't want them spreading disease or, or eating in our haystacks. We just want to change their behavior and get them, you know, we want to survive and have our farm sustainable. And so everybody agreed that elk were part of the natural landscape and, and there was only maybe a maybe you could count on both hands a number of people that actually wanted them gone. Um, that can be a little trickier on other issues, um, like wolves and pigs come as an example, but but I think that there are a lot of, uh, there, I think there's more common ground than most people think, and looking for that common ground is uh, is not always easy, but I think going in, if we can get people showing up with an open mind, and also I think that part of it is that saying that, you know, when it comes to pigs, uh, or wolves or or other issues like this, I'm sorry, but nobody's walking away here with their perfect, absolute, everything they want. Um, you guys are not going to have 1.2 million pigs to hunt because you love them. That's uh, 1.2 million is way, way too much for a whole bunch of other people. Um, so we need to be able to manage them. Uh, but but we need to find some kind of common ground here. Uh, you know, what is the, where, what are we thinking similarly a lot and what things are we willing to live with? Can we find some uh, opportunities here to have some, what I call, you know, quick wins? What is something we can do tomorrow that costs very little or takes a little bit of time where we can have a win? Something that's, you know, whatever it is. Uh, can we do a workshop to talk about, you know, moose ecology and have people from different communities and different perspectives come together? We've had meetings where, it was kind of tense, to be honest, but having, you know, hunters, uh, like um, sport hunters, indigenous hunters, government folks, and scientists together around a hunt, uh, and, uh, and you know, having, we've had people bring an animal into camp and do, you know, a, a butchering workshop slash a little bit of anatomy from the scientists, a little bit of disease ecology for me, and, and uh, you know, kind of talking about the common ground of of, of these animals and, and a lot of good discussion comes from that. Having people sit down and eat together and sleep together, uh, you know, at camps, camping together is, uh, we have definitely seen that as a game changer. 
I try and break down those barriers and realize also that, you know what, I'm just a scientist. I got kids at home. I drive a, a, two, a 2019 Hyundai. I'm not some guy wearing a white lab coat mixing beakers together. I got a family. I got, you know, I'm, I'm a regular guy. And that's one of the sort of stereotypes I have to, frankly, fight when I arrive is that some people think of biologists as, you know, one community said, well, we have this one consultant. Um, we know that all consultants are assholes, and this guy's a major, major <laughs> asshole. So he must be the best consultant out there. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> and so, you know, you want to get past trying to break down some of those stereotypes or some of those assumptions, because I think a lot of people show up at the table assuming, okay, that conversation guy's thinking that, that farmer, well, he's obviously thinking that, and this government guy's got his secret agenda or whatever, when in fact, when it comes down to it, and that's certainly been my experience, is that most of the the men and women doing these things are pretty darn decent people. And they, it, yeah, if you threaten their livelihood, they're going to get pissed off and they might swear and they might even really get upset. But, but you know, in a, if we can find some some reasonable discussion and realize we're all decent people trying to do our, get our lives and go home to our wife and kids and have some hot dogs, then, you know, maybe things aren't so hard to sort out. Yeah, I'm uh, hot dogs because they're made of pork. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was perfect. I, I wanted to jump back to something that you called uh, poor man's grizzly. And I know Tristan has some elaborate questions. Mine are pretty, uh, I'll dumb it down a little bit, but like you call the poor man's grizzly, but, and, and they're populating like crazy by the sounds of it, other than hunting, like what other, what other, like what else is killing them? Like what, what kind of, I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with this question. Yeah, I, yeah, I hear you. I was interested because, like, we started talking about solutions there for a little bit, and I, I think you might be on to the biggest one ever, which is like the, the camp compromises. You got to come to camp with me because we we solve a lot of problems in camp ourselves too. Um, but uh, like, what other less, solutions? Less pills or more whiskey? Yeah, yeah. What other That's solutions true. are we looking for for hogs here? Like, what's the future looking like? Well, there are a lot of um, uh, good tools in the toolbox. And one of the things I talk a lot about when we talk about wildlife issues is that this idea, if you're looking for uh, this magic silver bullet, this one thing that's going to save the day, you're probably living in a fool's paradise. And that really, I, I always I think this resonates for a lot of folks that farm and, uh, and tinker in their garage is thinking about having the guy with the big red toolboxes full of all the snap-on tools and think about it as saying we need a, a big toolbox and we need lots of tools in the toolbox. And when it comes to these hard issues, whether it's the collapse of moose or or wild pigs blowing up or or all the other issues around elk and disease and all the things I've been involved in, um, that you need to say, okay, what does our toolbox look like? And in, and in our toolbox right now, we have ground trapping with big, these big, large panel traps um, that can capture entire, a group of pigs is called a sounder. And so you can capture an entire sounder group in one trap. And, you know, there's some nice videos with Borebuster and some of these companies showing capturing 50 plus animals in one snap with two, they make a figure eight of two round traps side by side. I think it's 51 or 54 pigs walk in, they drop the trap and boom, they just remove 54 animals. So the provinces have basically gone all in on traps. So Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta, that's basically the only thing they do right now is trapping. Trapping is very good. It is a big tool in the toolbox, uh, but it has its limitations. The big limitations of trapping is that it can be very slow. So if you phone and say, I just saw a huge sounder of 20 pigs just south of my farm, um, 
they will show up, they'll scout, they'll set up cameras, they'll put, start putting up bait. And then after days or weeks of baiting, they'll start to set up a trap. And so capturing a pig would probably take at least a week, but could easily take a couple of months to get it right. And if some Yahoo comes in and shoots the area up because they heard there's pigs there, or they saw a bunch of trucks going into that same spot over and over, then you're shot. The whole thing is ruined and you have to go somewhere else and start from scratch again. Um, so trapping is very, very good, but it also is only one tool in the toolbox. The other one, which we've demonstrated very successfully on the prairies, is we use a helicopter and we capture pigs, and you can do that like gangbusters. This helicopter will go at you know, 125 miles an hour, and so you can cover huge ground and you can find pigs in areas where you will never, ever get a truck or, uh, or any other uh, human being, maybe on a snowmobile, maybe if you're lucky on a good day. And so you get into these wild areas and you cover huge areas and you find a lot of pigs um, and people can't keep up with you at that speed either. So if there's somebody watching, trying to sort of um, get in on the action, if you will, which does happen on ground trapping, like I've swapped trucks with buddies and rented a truck and I use a red one and then a gold one, then a brown one and go with my wife's minivan one time and kind of mix it up a bit and come from different directions to the trap sites. But, but a helicopter can be, su- it's expensive. But it, you also get so much done in a short time, whereas with trapping, you can have guys working night shift, day shift for months and months and months, burning thousands of dollars in fuel to get one group. Whereas with the helicopter, you are pulling lots of pigs. You know, you can do a couple of dozen in a day and you can take out entire sounder groups and you can also leave one behind. You can capture like a nice big male. You could even uh, give it a vasectomy, put a GPS satellite collar and let it go. And that's what we call a Judas pig. And nothing is going to find pigs better than another pig. A male looking for females to mate with is going to find pigs a hundred times better than any other solution you have. So Judas pigs are hugely important. And one of the things I've been saying for a while is that I've been sort of saying, you know, and, and sorry, maybe a little political, but I'm saying that, you know, you'll know when governments are serious about wild pigs when. And one of those things will be when you have a bunch of Judas pigs out, because not only do they help you find and remove pigs, there are also, if there is a crisis situation, which I think is coming at some point, um, somebody, you know, you can imagine an unfortunate scenario where a kid gets killed or or a family gets attacked or, or some, or a disease outbreak that, you know, like African swine fever or something, um, there will be a push to immediately try and eradicate every pig in Canada. And having collars on the ground, on animals on the ground will increase your odds by 100 plus um, so collaring and juice pigs is a big deal. Uh, using a helicopter to find them and remove them. Uh, shooting machine guns out of a helicopter is a bit more contentious. Um, we don't do that from a university uh, perspective, but certainly, you know, in the U.S., that's that's uh, all out war. I mean, when USDA got their money, uh, when I was working with them, they got a huge influx of cash, of which a small part of that, well, a good chunk of that, supported our work. But immediately they bought two helicopters and half a million rounds of ammunition and they went out and started removing pigs literally by the thousands and some days they would kill you know a thousand pigs in a day and so there you you can remove a lot of animals but again that is not in and of itself the answer but traps are very good at big groups helicopters are very complementary so a, an ideal scenario in my view is having helicopter work through the winter and trapping year-round to find and remove pigs. So those two together can be good. Lots and lots of talk about poison globally. Um, some talk about doing it here on the prairies. 
haven't heard of anybody actually using poison. The big challenge with poison is that, you know, people fear it, but the non-target issue is the big deal. So you put it, and we know this from other poisoning, right? So you put on strychnine for to kill a bunch of ground squirrels and you find dead raccoons, dead badgers, dead foxes, dead ravens. And so this non-target thing is a big deal. And especially in rural areas where you've got kids out playing and farm dogs and things, um, there is a poison is a tricky one. There is a nitrite-based poison the U.S. is pushing hard right now that's quite targeted towards pigs. And the idea is to have a heavy metal lid that the, only a pig can lift up and access. And so they're they're working through some of these issues. But so far, uh, we're not seeing any poison up here in Canada yet. Or yeah. a bear. <laughs> I well, can see a bear. Problem. In black bear country, that's going to be problematic. Now they're working on things where they use visual cues. So they have cameras oh, and I've... they have microphones and they're actually... They hear and they say that, you know, it's grunting. That's a pig. Lift off the, the lock and then the lid can be flipped up. Um, a bear shows up. The thing locks down. And I was actually at a conference and this guy had one where not only would it lock down for bears, but if the bear really tried to tear it apart, it would actually give it a zap through its paws. Mm. Uh, so the technology is coming and they're trying, but certainly trapping and uh um, and uh, and helicopter are two of the big ones. Unfortunate reality actually is that sport hunting is really not having much impact at all. Hunter success mm. for wild pigs here in Canada is about two to three percent. It's probably being generous. Uh, I get a lot of hunters phone me, not every single day, but pretty close phone or email or or send me messages on Facebook. Where do I get these pigs? Where do I get these pigs? And then call me and yell at me because they didn't find any. Because uh, a lot of guys are used to pushing bush for white-tailed deer or tree stands or, frankly, driving around is not uncommon either, looking for something to shoot at. And uh, and that's none of those is really good to get you a whole lot of luck with pigs. And so you got to really work at it. you got to really put in the time and and the energy and, and bait and trail cameras and, and you know, really be learn how to be quiet um, and, and set up in the right ways. And so hunter success is very poor. When we got this money from the USDA, the first winter, we put out a bunch of GPS collars, and I didn't sleep for about a week. I thought, and and hunters, some of them, you know, they'll tell you, Ryan, I don't give a crap. If I see a pig wearing one of your collars, I'm shooting it. I've heard that a thousand times, and, and that's fine. It's not illegal either. It's perfectly legal, and so it's unfortunate for me, but it's also, I can't tell you not to, right? So that's fine. But it got me so nervous that I was I was waking up in the middle of the night and checking on these pigs. Are they alive? Are they still moving? Well, it turned out that over all the years that we did all the collaring, we only lost a small handful to hunters. Hunter success was very, very poor. There was a great big, huge male. We had collared for over two years, and uh, he, he never got touched once. So, um, yeah, that's the reality is that hunters are not removing them in any any major numbers in any way at all at this point. And, we and need helicopters. Like, yeah, a lot of helicopters. Yep. Um, and for like natural pred, like predators or anything, there or just the natural world or the way it goes, there's not nothing that really goes after them. Is there like do the coyotes go after young ones or like wolves uh, or anything like that? Bears coyotes even? would do so at their own risk. Um, those mums would tear them apart real quick. I don't think coyotes are probably getting much. I think the risk is so high. They again remember they're traveling in sounder groups, so this is a uh, this is like say a 300 pound mum with uh, 15 of her daughters and granddaughters 
all traveling together in a group and collectively, you know, I have photos of sounders that where if you do the estimates on the back of an envelope, they weigh more than an F-150 pickup truck and they have all razor sharp tusks. And what's amazing when you're holding, when we capture, live capture these pigs, you're putting a collar on them. You got a blindfold on, you got them hobbled up, all their legs are tied up, but we don't use drugs. We don't put them to sleep or anything. And so the whole time those top and bottom tusks are lined up together and they're just moving. And you can just hear them going back and forth, back and forth. And those things are self-sharpening Ginsu knives. They're razor sharp. And, uh, and and they can be very, very dangerous. So, so um, you know, predation is very, very low. I only know of one case of one guy that I really know and trust that, that said he's confirmed that a wolf chased down one pig by itself and took it out and killed it. That's the only case I know of in, the, in Canada, period. Um, most of pigs where they are across the agricultural landscape, we've removed, you know, prairie grizzlies are long gone, of course, um, and we've mostly eliminated bears, cougars, and wolves, which are the three that could take them, uh, potentially take some out, for sure. Uh, but most of the areas where they currently exist, there aren't any predators left. As they've expanded into the forest fringe, and that might, but this is one of the things we're looking at um, starting this year is, you know, what's the risk of them moving north well into the boreal forest and maybe showing up in your backyard in Thompson at some point. And we think that predators may actually, um, because you've got big intact predator populations, you know, you've, I've seen packs of wolves, 17, 18 animals. Um, when pigs try and move in there, they may find their match there. And that may be a limiting factor, hopefully. Um, but certainly over their existing range, there's just no big predators other than coyotes, which I, I can't imagine having any luck. I've heard um, a couple of people say, oh, yeah, farm dogs will kill them. And I said, no way. The farm dog is going to be toast. Occasionally, mm-hmm. if there was a young animal somehow running around on its own, it would probably be fair pickings for coyotes or or something to take it out or maybe a farm dog. But uh, any sounder group of any size or big, you know, 450-pound male with these razor sharp tusks you'd be crazy to mess with it i certainly yeah. wouldn't mess with it yeah it's just like and and one reason why i ask it too is just like i know you've referenced the spruce woods area i know seeing some of the stuff on facebook and some of the some of your stuff is that uh, that shiloh area seems very popular for pigs um and just me hunting kind of you know not in that area, but close to that area. I know there's there's quite a few black bears showing up more and more. It seems like every year too. That's so I was like kind of like, well, if there's black bears around, I wonder if they'd mess with them and kill a few off, you know. But yeah, they probably would take some. They would certainly grab some babies. There is a a trail camera video from I think it's California. Somebody sent where a black bear. It's in the middle of the night, and these pigs are sitting there, and all of a sudden, this gigantic black bear comes out of nowhere and grabs a sort of a ham roast sized piglet and just runs for it. And mom gets up and she's furious, but she comes back eventually and that piglet's gone. So it probably happens a little bit, but I can't yeah. imagine it having any population level effects, but, uh, but you right. know, they can be, they're incredibly aggressive. And if you look on YouTube and see, you look up wild boar charge and you see video after video of these guys, hunters out there and, the, and it's mostly hunters uh, because you start shooting at them and they will turn and be super aggressive. We actually had uh, one of the women on our capture crew actually got zapped by a pig. Um, we had a big male down that was in some willows and and we were kind of restraining it. And, and Well, not kind of, we had it fully restrained. Um, and it was all hobbled up. The legs were tied together. And um, she, instead of going around the long way, she went in too close. And all of a sudden she said, it got me. And everybody said, what do you mean it got you? 
And he said, the pig got me. And her husband, the pilot, had videotaped it. And we had to watch it literally the next day in slow motion to see. But they flipped their head up. And it moved so fast, it was a blur. And it, at, at some point, he slowed it down enough you could actually see it. But you didn't actually see the head move in the video. And it just flipped its head up. And that tusk, they get you on the inside of the leg going for your femoral artery. And she said, it got me. And somebody said, um, how bad is it? And she said, uh, nope, not good. Nope, my boot's filling with blood. We got to go. And <laughs> luckily, we had a little helicopter sitting right there, uh, fully running, ready to roll. <laughs> and so we just carried her over through in the helicopter and the uh, and the pilot takes off. And so we call the the, heli- the hospital and say, and I just kind of remember we said something like, um, you know, the helicopter is inbound. We're going to land uh, right there at emergency and take her right in. And they're like, no, no, you can't land here. We don't have a helicopter pad and we can't take you. And we're just like, well, no, it's he's en route. He's coming. He's landing. This is the best pilot I've ever seen in my life. We're landing next to that minivan in the parking lot. And, you know, this guy could land in your bathtub and take off easily, right? So it's <laughs> he's like goes over a swing set and drops down right beside the minivan and the, and just run her right in, straight into Emerge. And, of course, the problem with these animals is not only the cut because it needed a bunch of stitches. The, the thing that saved her life was that she had – it was probably minus 34 or something – and so she had big ca- uh, padded car hearts, uh, a pair of jeans, three pairs of long johns, and the, all these layers. And so by the time it got through the layers, it, it got her, but didn't kill her um, and didn't hit her femoral artery. But she bled a lot and, and needed a bunch of stitches. But then the big panic with those kinds of things is the infection. Because one of our capture guys actually um, got bit by a wolf when we were capturing wolves. And his hand swole up like a catcher's mitt. It looked fake. And oh, he... He thought, and his doctor thought, he was going to lose his hand for a while there. And so those wow. bacterial infections are actually the the once you once you've stopped the bleeding and you've got it under control, then the next panic item is infection. Yeah. Huh. This is uh this is the worst time of the podcast because we're closing in an hour, and I, it seems like I got three thousand questions left for you. Um, but I'm I'm going to try to maybe get through a few of them quick. Um. But like talking about, you know, I don't know, just, I don't know, over this last little bit, I've kind of formed an opinion now that like, you know, pigs in Manitoba isn't obviously a good thing. And even though I want to hunt them and I want to shoot one, you know, maybe I might be looking at a different avenue of thought. But the, but my thing is, is that without getting political again, is where where where's our stance on like getting rid of them? Like, I mean, you talk about them transferring disease. We've, we've just recently had CWD in our province. Like, what is like? What are we looking at when it comes to wild pigs? Like, why aren't we doing something more, or are we that we just don't know about? Like, um, I know you kind of touched on it a few times there, but like, what like what is the what are we doing? Well, it's a great question. I've been advocating for action for a long, long time now, and for whatever reason, part of the problem with pigs is they are out of sight, out of mind. And so um, people who hunt moose go out and they just don't find them and they used to find them. And so it's very obvious. And they're like, I went to this area and we've gone for 20 years and we've always got a moose or, you know, most of the time. With pigs, nobody know, you know, most people didn't see them as kids and didn't really know what they were. And, and people don't see them. And I've had, I'm sure a thousand people say, Ryan, I don't know what you're talking about. I've lived in Manitoba my whole life or Saskatchewan or, or, insert place name here i've lived here my for 65 years and i've hunted and fished and farmed and i've never seen one i don't know what you're talking about and and the reality is yeah they're nocturnal they're hiding 
they're around and they're way more common than people know or think, but they're they're out of sight, out of mind. So it's I think that's part of it. Um, I think there's a bit of embarrassment because this is a self-made problem that, you know, governments, they brought these things in and they introduced them and and paid a lot of money to support programs to bring them in. And so I think it's a, a sort of a pollution of our own making. And so I think there's a little bit of embarrassment there, maybe, but I honestly don't understand why we haven't been on it sooner and, and more. I think there are good people doing really good things in Manitoba. The Squeal on Pigs program is excellent and and they're doing a lot. but but you know, to be perfectly clear, it's way too little, way too late at this point. Um, and so uh, if that doesn't change, then we're just going to continue to see them expanding out of control as they are now. The reality also is that we have missed the window to eradicate these things. We are not eradicating them from Manitoba. They are here to stay. Um, and so my grandkids might be studying them and and talking about these Canadian super pigs uh, on, on my behalf uh, a long time from now. <laughs> Um, we can do a lot to live with them. We can contain them. We could say, for example, and I've advocated for this for a long time, saying that, you know, let's prioritize our efforts and say, we will not allow any pigs east of Winnipeg. That's the line or, or Portage or whatever. And say, you know, we have a problem in southwestern Manitoba and it's not going away. And it's spread all the way from, you know, the Duck Mountains all the way down to the U.S. border. Um, we're not getting rid of those anytime soon. But I do say that if if there was a major effort right now, I think that keeping that the the uh, I will say the eastern half of the province pig free is very very doable right now. But again, that window's closing. We're seeing more and more pigs showing up uh, in different areas. You know, I got a buddy of mine phoned me. He said, "Ryan, you won't believe this, but I'm in the white shell and I just hit a pig." You know, and that's very close to the uh, the Ontario border, right? So. So I think that there there's a window here where we can do a lot. Uh, the window to eradicate is long gone. They're here in the prairies, and and you know they're just absolutely exploding out of control in Saskatchewan. And so even if Manitoba set off a couple of medium-sized thermonuclear devices and eliminated, which is probably the only real path forward at this point, which of course is ridiculous, but but you know they're they're here. Um, even if there was massive massive efforts in Manitoba. If Saskatchewan doesn't come in lockstep, then then pigs are just flow, and we're seeing them flow over the border already. And so it is a um, it's more than just a provincial issue. We have to see everybody rowing in the same direction on this. And and frankly, we're not there yet. And and yeah. the window to do much about it is continues to pose more and more. And they're expanding as we've been doing this podcast. Um, I would say at least two or three uh, female wild pigs on the Canadian prairies have dropped litters of uh, six on average. So we probably had something on the order of 18 new babies born during this conversation. Mm. <laughs> wow. Well, and that was kind of my next little, I got two more quick questions from the throat over Tristan, but that's kind of my next question is like, you kind of threw around a few numbers tonight. Um, just talking about Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, like, do we have like an estimate on what's around and, and like what, what we could see, like what's a projection if nothing happens in the next 10 years? We don't have good population estimates anywhere in Canada because you know what, as you well know, I'm sure what the provinces do and they do a really, really good job of this um, overall is they fly back and forth on lines with helicopters and planes and they count elk, deer, moose, all those good things, do some models and, and come up with estimates, and then they do it again next year and track trends. And so, you know, um, despite not always having funding to do all of the things that they would like, generally, I think all of the provinces, including Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, are all doing a pretty as good a job as possible at, uh, at monitoring those things and, and, and doing good science and good work. Um, 
problem is that doesn't work for pigs because they spend most of their time underneath the snow and under the soil or or tucked away under a spruce tree. And so you can fly a lot and not see pigs. And so aerial surveys won't work for pigs. You need a, a big giant trail camera network is really the only probably real way to get good estimates of numbers. We have excellent data on the spatial spread of these things. And they spread, you know, they've been spreading at over 40,000 square kilometers per year. And that keeps going up, oh, wow. right? People, a, a few people have said, you know, well, there's this sort of national strategy coming out. And their number one objective is to eradicate wild pigs in Canada, which is simply, um, frankly, silly at this point and, and, and actually slightly embarrassing. Because I will say that if someone tells you that they think we can eradicate wild pigs in Canada in 2024, they fundamentally misunderstand the situation we're in, uh, or whether by choice or or by just simply not getting it. Um, so they are here to stay, but I think there's a ton we can do to to manage that better. Um, and and there's been some good steps forward, but it, for reasons I don't fully understand, and and I don't blame people with boots on the ground at all. Uh, you know, not pointing fingers at anybody, but we're stuck in this way too little, way too late model across Canada, and I'm just watching them explode. And so people talk about all the work that's been done in the last two years, which is great, but yet what was the what is by far the biggest year we ever had was 2023. 2023 was off the charts for numbers of occurrences, for the distribution, all of that. So we're uh, we're not winning, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I got like the bogus idea is just like, you know, let's just put a huge bounty on them and every hunter, uh, you know, on this side of Winnipeg will we'll, we'll hunt them and maybe that might help, but by sounds like that won't help either. My last question for you, um, kind of just a silly question, to be honest with you, Ryan, is that uh, I was on your Facebook page and I think it was a, an angry Ryan day because you're like, I do not want to see any more posts about these conspiracy theories. <laughs> what What's that about? Have you heard some, you know, crazy stories in your in your history of Research oh, pick. Oh my God! I, well, when I was at Riding Mountain, there was everybody. Many people would tell you the reason you see brown bears in Riding Mountain is because the grizzly escaped from the Dolphin Zoo and impregnated <laughs> these black bears. And so, if you see the brown version, that they're grizzly bear hybrids. And we heard that you know the government to to uh, to get back at the Ukrainian people had released uh, Ukrainian wolves, uh, man-eating Ukrainian wolves, and and I've heard all the conspiracy theories from pigs and. And, and, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot is where people just dismiss our science and we'll say, well, here's the map. We use caller data. We have trail camera photos. I mean, I have like, I don't know, let's say 9,000 trail camera photos or some dumb thing of pigs um, easily. And people say, wow, they don't exist. This is all baloney. This guy is one of the things we hear all the time. And I laugh at it because I, if I had the money, I would be buying my Icon 3 aircraft, but but saying that, you know, I'm I, the only reason I do this is to get research funding and to get rich. And so I drive a 2019 oh. Hyundai and, uh, and I mostly just take peanut butter sandwiches to work every day. And so I, I haven't gotten rich off of this, but there are, yeah, there's a whole group of people out there that have some different views of the planet. And and I'm very down with people disagreeing with me about things and, and you know, challenging me and asking good, hard questions. But when you just say, oh, yeah, it's the, the liberal government, that you know, he, uh, he doesn't want us hunting them so he can, the government can have for themselves. Well, yeah. and when the question I ask is, why would you go onto a Canadian wild pig research page and come up with, you know, all these, you know, just deny science or, or say like, I don't believe in science. Everything that Ryan says is baloney. 
Okay, well, go start your own Facebook page and talk about that because that's what I'm not here for. So I, I certainly have. I don't think I've gotten too grumpy over the years, but I've, my <laughs> tolerance for bullshit has largely evaporated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, uh, yeah, I found it funny. I read a couple of them, and uh, you know, and it's throughout this talk tonight. Like I was just thinking about. I went camping two summers ago, uh, chasing myself, Tristan's brother. Uh, we went uh, south of Austin, Manitoba, into the, I don't know if it was still in the Spruce Woods or not, but we were camping along the Assiniboine, found this awesome spot. We we're going to walk down the river and fish for the night. And, you know, we set, set up, we had a big citizen canvas tent, wood stove, and we we're all just, you know, thought this looked beautiful. And then we looked over closer to the trees and everything was rooted up from pigs, like yeah. everything. And we're like, and I'm like, holy shit, these things do exist. It was like seeing, you know, Sasquatch shit. It was crazy. That's amazing. Yeah, no, that's uh, when you see that damage is because that's what a lot of people see. And many people even living around Spruce Woods have never seen a pig, but they've seen the impacts for sure. Yeah. My, I had two summer students and their first day they went to Spruce Woods. They stayed at some motel near there and they're driving north into the Spruce Woods from, from the south. And they, they uh, come beside a cornfield and there's a 400 pound pig shot and just left for dead in the ditch right beside the road. And they call me like, what do we do with this thing? I'm like collect <laughs> samples and keep going and go do your work. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite a, it's a crazy situation. All right. Hmm. Um, before we let you go, Ryan, I was just wondering too, like I, Sheldon, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like most of our audience is like of the like hunting slash conservation slash fishing group. And um, besides given all your your favorite fishing spots across the Prairie Provinces and the Shield, Brian, what would you say to that that conservation kind of hunter mindset around like this the the pig project here? What what can we as hunters do here? Because clear like you advocated that, you know, maybe um, targeting pigs as a, as a as a hunting community is not going to be the tool moving forward. Like, what what can hunters do here to to help with the pig problem? Well, certainly, um, can, one of the major things that ha we have so far is hunters have been incredibly generous and supportive. Well, as always, and all the stuff we do, hunters are great, but they give us trail camera photos of pigs. And they report sightings and occurrences. And so we have this database, which is now about 65,000 occurrences. And a whole bunch of that is is some people just sending, you know, I saw one and that was it. But we have people living right beside the Spruce Woods, for example, or, or right in the heart of pig country in Saskatchewan, Alberta, that send me hundreds upon hundreds of photos of, of pigs and, and just sightings. Say, hey, I was out at this exact location. I got a GPS for you. We saw a group of a female with seven piglets. And... And those those observations are huge. And that's how we build our maps. Because if you go on our Facebook page, you can download maps that open in, in either iHunter or you can open them in um, uh, um, uh, Google Earth. And you can pan around and look and see where the pigs are in each of the three prairie provinces. And those are built on, you know, we use our caller data and our own data from our trail cameras and that. But a huge part of that is people sharing their observations and calling and emailing or messaging on Facebook and just sending all this data and just talking about pigs and saying, hey, we saw this thing happen. And so I get stories every single day that are just my brain starts to just that's why I have this giant head. It's filling up with all these stories and rich information. And, and also, you know, we've gotten lots of ears from hunters as well. We're looking at genetics of pigs. And so uh, hunters have saved us ears and we take the punches and we do the genetics to look at 
you know, what, what are these things made of? And so sharing ears has been great. We needed a bunch of ticks from pigs three years ago, and hunters just said, hey, I just shot this pig near Holland, Manitoba, and it's got probably 3,000 ticks. Do you want it? And said, yeah, we'll go grab it. And my summer student drove all the way there and pulled oh. all the ticks and counted them and jarred them and collected data on ticks. And so oh. hunters are huge in that way, job. for sure. Um, it is open season to hunt pigs. And so while I, uh, you know, I have, I've tried to be careful with what I say here and that, you know, that, that sport hunting, despite what we wish was reality, it has not been reducing or eliminating pigs and, and probably never will be the silver bullet or a major factor in reducing pigs. But certainly hunters that are harvesting them, if they give us samples and, and data, that all feeds into our models. And we use that knowledge and also those sightings. Uh, I, th- I think our single biggest contribution to pigs in, during my career, perhaps my biggest contribution to science in my life, has been these Canadian scale maps of pigs and tracking their spread has been uh, pretty important. And I think it has, although we haven't seen as much action as we we would like, I will argue strongly that those maps have pushed people and governments to rethink a lot of things. And, and while people will continue to challenge us on those maps and those data, um, you know, I always say you can ignore pigs all you want up until the day that you can't ignore them anymore. And they're in your back 40 or they're eating your rosebush or they they took down one of your domestic pigs or who knows what, right? Um, and so I think that's probably where, I think we're getting close to the point where people can't ignore them anymore. And something, I think we're going to hit a crisis point here and something's going to change big time. Yeah. Um, okay, I got one more quick question for you um, before we go. You did mention iHunter. Um, we like, we use iHunter a lot, but you, you, you mentioned there's an iHunter. Is there a map for like where the pigs? What did you say there? Sorry, I kind of missed it. Just... Yeah, so if you go to our Facebook page, the pin post at the top, uh, Canadian Wild Pig Research Project, you go to the very top pin post. There's a big, long, rambling explanation of distribution and how we collect it. And then there's okay. some files. There's a Google Earth file for Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. You download that, and on any laptop, uh, phone, tablet, or desktop, um, you can open it. Either you can install Google Earth, or you can just use the on the web browser, and you can open it up, and it pulls up a map of Manitoba, and different shaded colored areas show the darker purple, the more pigs there are. And you could, the nice thing about Google Earth is, as many people know and use it for, for hunting purposes and thinking, planning their hunts, is you can go into the area and say, okay, well, we're going in here for a deer hunt, but if we could find some pigs, that'd be great too, is often the thinking. And so you can see what pigs are around. Or if you're a farmer and you're worried about them, you can also do the same. So you can zoom in on certain areas and see where pigs are at. Um, I do need to update those layers, and that's certainly this winter's project is to to do. uh, uh, Not a lot has changed, to be frank, other than that they've expanded a lot um, since I made them about two years ago. They're still very, very accurate because where pigs were is where they are now. Uh, we haven't eradicated them anywhere in Canada yet. So uh, so those maps are available. I've got, there's many different styles of maps I've posted Canada-wide. We've mapped, you know, here they were, what it looked like in 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010. We've got series of maps showing the spread. And we've got uh, individual provinces by, uh, we've mapped them by watershed, by political boundaries. Yeah. We can map any which way you want. And if people throw me a request, I try and try and do as best as I can to respond and post uh, 
usually with the data setup, I can usually make a pretty good map in less than 20 minutes. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Like now I'm just thinking about it. Now we got to talk to Mark Stenners and at iHunter, make it interactive, real time, click the button. This is where I've seen a pig and it automatically generates. And then it's like field to field to table data, boots on the ground. That's what we got to do next. That would be fantastic. <laughs> People are very secretive about their pig spots. Um, that has been a ah, that's right, sure. Which is not unreasonable, but yeah, like just like your favorite fishing hole where you catch the big walleye, um, people don't necessarily want to share where they shot their pig either. But uh, but there's an incredible number of people, and one of the reasons that people share with us more than anybody else uh, is that they know we're not out to get anybody. We don't have a big agenda, and we, while we do produce maps, they're not super super fine scale, because the reality right. is, if I stand right now uh, on this podcast. I just saw a group of eight pigs south of Shelley's house um, last night. And you post that, you would have, and not even exaggerating, probably at least 40 trucks patrolling your area, driving up and down your roads. You would have 100 knocks on the door. Your your uh, All your phone messages would be maxed out. I mean, people want to find them. And uh, mm-hmm. we have to be careful about you know providing general information but not, if you pinpoint too close, then people will get, get overrun for sure with uh, requests just because so many hunters want to get these things. Yeah. You just gave me just, a great idea for April Fools. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. You could get someone very, very good. I don't, I don't uh, suggest you do it. But if I've you seen do, 60 I pigs. Post <laughs> some picture from Texas and just somebody yeah. you know living near Spruce Woods or somewhere rural Manitoba say, yeah. Johnny's got all the pigs to just watch the people just roaring by his front driveway. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Tristan, do you got anything left for, uh, for Ryan? And if not, maybe we'll start wrapping her up. Uh, yeah, no, I just say that like, Hey, thanks for coming on Ryan. And, and I learned quite a bit today. I, I did not fully understand like the scope of the, the wild pig problem across Canada. And it's, Kind of frustrating to to get educated on that because it reminds me kind of the zebra mussel situation here where we dragged our feet for a long time and it's just yeah. kind of frustrating frustrating to see that play out again. I'm hoping that um, the more we get the word out that we can continue to mobilize and and uh, actually advocate for some of the stuff. But yeah, I, I appreciate coming on sharing sharing the knowledge and hopefully we can make some positive change here. Awesome. I most likely will never own an Icon 3, but the backup plan is to buy a Cessna 185 on floats. And so I'll take you guys out to some remote lake fishing at some point once I retire from all of this and have some free time. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm down for that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Tristan. I was going to say, normally we're offering the fishing invite. So this is, this is a, this is a switch, but I'm game. Yeah. It's nice to be invited for once. Cool. Well, I've never turned down a fishing invite in my life, so I will uh, gladly accept. But anyway, that's great. Well, it was great talking to you guys. That was a ton of fun. I think we ended up uh, talking for a while there, but I was able to come out of my shell somehow and uh, tell a few stories. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say in my final comments here is that you kind of threw a cur- curveball at me uh, when we were talking earlier. And you're like, oh, I don't know. Like, I'm pretty shy. But then uh, it's been a, an amazing conversation. So I'm just <laughs> like, oh, this is a lot easier than I was expecting. So. This is perfect. Um, but yeah, I'm going to kind of uh, echo what Tristan said. Like, thanks for coming on. I, I, I'm i in the same boat as Tristan. I knew they're around. I've seen evidence of them, but I didn't know. There's a lot of things that I don't know about them. And and um, that's one of the great things about our platform is that we get, get to get people like you on to talk about it. 
hopefully share the information with other people and and uh yeah it's just it's a little bit of awareness and, and it's good to do so yeah thanks again for for jumping on i appreciate you taking the time and yeah thanks for what you do in the field and, and, and creating even that facebook page i mean i would never have known this if i didn't run across that so thanks for doing that as well awesome great to talk to you guys have a good one okay man take care take care bye Oh man, that was a great episode talking, getting a little piggy with with the guy. That was fun. That was a fun episode. Before we take off, April, do you mind just telling the f- good folks that are listening where they can where they can and what they can find at our website? Oh, so you can find our website online where you find normal websites, uh, www.panoramicoutdoors.com. And uh, on there you'll find the blog. You'll find a blog that's got some recipes and some some uh, information. And then there's the store. And we don't have a specific sale going on in the store right now, but we've got so much gear. We got a restock on toques, restock on sweaters. So there is a ton of different sweaters that you can get and um, some good sizing right now. So jump on that because that can be difficult. Sometimes we kind of run out of some sizing, but we're restocked. So we have got a variety. Awesome. Awesome. Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in to the, another episode of Panoramic Outdoors podcast. If you'd like to help us out, you can check out the store like April was just talking about, or you can rate us, uh, leave a comment on your podcast platforms, follow us on Instagram or Facebook, TikTok, um, Yeah, and just uh, follow up. Come for the ride.